0: I like to get right in right in on it. As if this is booth one late night. It feels more intimate. Booth one at night.
1: Let's go to collar one.
0: <laughs> yeah, Booth One After Dark. That's right. That's what this is called. Stay for the late
1: show. It gets a
0: little blue. <laughs> <laughs> well, you've tuned in to another episode of Booth One, the place for the art of lively conversation about the arts and popular culture, coming to you from high above, uh, Evanston, Illinois, just north of the Chicago city limits. I'm Gary Zabinski, your host, welcoming today's co-host to the studio, the return of the always entertaining Kevin Ty- Nice! How are you, Kevin? I'm doing very well, Gary. It's a pleasure to be here. Well, Kevin, if you were to describe your background in your CV... What would you want people to know about you? You were a guest on the show with our friend Paul Strolley a few episodes ago. Remind people who you are, what you do, where you come from, what makes Kevin Tice tick. What? Uh, uh, <laughs> let's see.
1: This is my. This is what they call the elevator conversation. Where That's you right. Just, you distill yourself down to your essence, right? I am an actor, a director, and a writer for 30 years here in Chicago. Uh, I have uh, an artistic associate with the Oak Park Festival Theater. I'm an ensemble member with the Irish Theater of Chicago. And uh, I just released my second novel. It just came out uh, last month, Invading Nirvana.
0: We're going to talk about that. Good. I'm well into it. I, I just didn't have time to finish it before you came on the show today. But it's oh, uh, page well page-turner. along. It, it is a page turner. <laughs> I like it because it's short chapters, you can read it in the bathroom. Yes. It's a page and a half or three, and it's a complete thought, you know, from the beginning of the chapter to the end is one complete thing. And then, you know, you put it down and you pick it up the next time.
1: There is a reason for that. It was because it was originally written as a blog, because I would sit down every two days while I was in L.A., and I would write them as blog posts. So everything is, is a complete thought. There's no cliffhanger. Well, there's few cliffhangers. <laughs> Each one is sort of a, its own entity.
0: Yeah, I, I, I'm loving it. And we're going to talk a little bit more about it in a a few minutes. I did want to tell our listeners that our last podcast, which was uh, about Trevor the Musical, where we had Eli, Tori and Tyrone on as our guest, has gotten tremendous response. I want to remind people that the show is running another week from the time that you hear this podcast uh, until October 8th only. And it is well worth seeing. This thing is going places. If you want more information, or tickets go to writerstheater.org and I encourage you Kevin to get up to Glencoe and see that show if you can in the Indeed. next couple of weeks.
1: I'm proud to say I had dinner with uh, Gary and his lovely wife Betsy last night and we had a long discussion about this show and it sounds absolutely fascinating.
0: It's fun Speaking of having dinner we yes. had we had a lovely dinner oh, at an Italian restaurant. And then we went to see uh, a new play at uh, the Steppenwolf Theater. We got ourselves some press passes, as we always like to do and we're sitting in row D right on the aisle. Indeed. We, it was fantastic. Our seats. This is a play called The Rembrandt. And yes, it has to do with a particular Rembrandt painting called Aristotle with the bust of Homer. And... It stars Francis Guinan and the very famous and popular John Mahoney. Indeed. Uh, John was great. Yeah. Uh, He had one turn in the middle of the show where he actually plays Homer, Mm -hmm. all dressed in robes. This is a play by Jessica Dickey, directed by Hallie Gordon. It's playing now through November 5th at the Steppenwolf Theater. It's a play about art and beauty and love and life, and it transcends several centuries back and forth. Not a long play, 90 minutes, no intermission. What did you think of your experience last night, Kevin? How did you enjoy yourself?
1: I thought it was absolutely delightful. I thought the cast was spectacular. I loved everything about it, the writing, the set, the direction. I thought the the three uh, younger supporting characters were just lights out, stellar performers, all three of them. And then, uh, of course, you, you go to see this show because of the two leads. You go to see Francis Guinan and John Mahoney, and they were both just Spectacular! I, I I could not recommend the show enough. It's
0: really fun. That Francis Guinan is quite the actor, isn't he?
1: He really is, and he he shows his versatility in this. I mean, they both do, but really Guinan does specifically. Uh, he plays these two different characters throughout the course of the show, and it's just night and day the two guys that he plays. And he's I mean, I've always loved him. He's he's been terrific for many many decades. Yeah. But oh, just shows you what what it's like to see two pros. Uh, Get up on stage with the right material and the right director and just knock it out of the park. It was really a a delightful evening.
0: I enjoyed the production. I enjoyed the acting very, very much. And I I thought it was uh, very nicely directed. There were some very interesting moments in the first, say, well, let's call it the first scene, long scene that takes place Mm -hmm. in a room in a museum, say at the Met Mm -hmm. or the Art Institute of Chicago. And there is a guard played by Francis Guinan, and he's an older man, and he's been this guard in this room for a number of years. Mm -hmm. And one of the paintings is this Rembrandt painting. How that scene ends is he actually touches the art, loses his job because of it, we find out later on. But he touches the art. And something about touching the art kind of explodes the imagination and takes him back, where then he plays... Actually, Rembrandt in the uh, 17th century, the idea about actually touching art Mm -hmm. or touching beauty or touching the creativity plays throughout this play. Uh, There's also a a dying partner in in the mix. Mm -hmm. And, And this whole sense of what is the actual essence of art and truth, and beauty, and love is explored throughout. I I thought it was well, again, well-produced, beautifully acted. I thought it was a play that had mostly ideas going on. I could have used with a little bit more story. Mm -hmm. I wanted more story from these people, especially backstory uh, about them. But that said, it's a wonderful production and well worth saying. Yeah, uh, John Mahoney is just, he's phenomenal. Yeah. He's 78 now or something like yeah. that. Yeah. And he has this long, long monologue as Homer, uh, where he's again dressed in these robes like Homer. And it's 15 minutes of just monologue. Yeah. I, I don't know. I don't know how the man does it.
1: I would say this I would recommend people to go see it because I suspect that Mr. Mahoney is only going to grace our stages for so much longer. You think? Yeah. I, I'm not saying anything about his health. I'm saying he could well be done with doing stage work very soon. If you want to catch what could be one of his last stage performances, I would go see uh, the
0: Rembrandt just for that. It could be very likely that this may be his last or near his last. Yeah. He's been hinting at retiring for years. He certainly doesn't need to keep working.
1: No, it would be a great coda to his career to do this because it's it's a really spectacular role for him and he's perfect in it.
0: You may be right. I I get the sense that he's not interested in retiring. Generally speaking, old actors don't retire. They just, they just <laughs> fade away, you know.
1: Yes. Uh, or some, some stay past their sell-by date, but I mean, Nussbaum will never retire. Yeah,
0: we've got a lot of those kinds of aging actors in Chicago that consistently keep working. Yeah. Uh, I they, mean, they
1: get roles all the time. Well, Nussbaum is 10 years older than Mahoney Easy, and he's yeah. still going strong. So yeah. you
0: never know. Something else uh, you might want to check out is that uh, fact that Bernadette Peters is going to take over for Bette Midler in the role of Dolly Levi in Hello, Dolly, Mm -hmm. starting in January. So you've got until January 14th to see Miss Midler and also uh, David Hyde Pierce, who plays Horace VanderGelder in the show. He's being replaced by the fantastic Victor Garber. Do you like Victor Garber? I love
1: Victor Garber. Saw him in Arcadia at Lincoln Center, way, way back in the early 90s, mid-90s, somewhere in there, with uh, Blair Brown and Robert Sean Leonard in Arcadia. And uh, I've been a huge Victor Garber fan for many years. Oh, yeah,
0: I've been a fan of his since the original Sweeney Todd. He's going to be fantastic in this show. He's going to be hilarious. No doubt. And I'm a huge Bernadette Peters fan as well. Uh, Something that we do on the show every once in a while is a segment I call Good Times and Bum Times. Mm -hmm. That's a reference to Follies. I thought I'd uh, revive that here today and see what your thoughts are on that. Sure. Uh, let me, you know what? I'm going to do the good times first. All right. Australian lottery winner. Uh, You know, you hear people say all the time that the chances of winning the lottery are so small that people who buy tickets, are just throwing their money away. Well, we know at this point that's not entirely true. The proceeds from lottery tickets benefit all kinds of good stuff like schools and environmental protection programs and infrastructure. So even if the people buying them are losing cash, someone's gaining in theory. Sure. Well, for Australian Bill Morgan, though, the ho-hum story has turned out quite a bit differently. He was a youngish man, not even 40, when he had a pretty rough year in 1999. First, he was in a bad car accident. Then he almost died of a heart attack. Next, he had an allergic reaction. to. And I promise you, this is the good times, not the bum I, times I,
1: segment. I, no, I, it, <laughs> he had an
0: allergic it, it reaction. His name
1: isn't Job, because it sounds like Job.
0: Can you believe it? He had an allergic reaction to some medication given to him in the hospital, uh, which sent him into a coma for 12 days. Wow! But Bill's number wasn't up, apparently, because he survived. And a few days later, later, his number was up when he won a car and a lottery worth $20,000. Wow. But we're not done. Oh, no. A few weeks after all this happened, the local news station got hold of his story. They were filming him at the convenience store where he buys lottery tickets and having him scratch another to reenact the event when Bill found himself staring at another winning ticket, this time for... $250,000. This is This is a good time. And, oh and then, you know, word. he deserves it. Little he J- is Job. Job,
1: Job deserves he it. He went through the trials and tribulations, and then he
0: got rewarded. Do you play the lottery personally? Do I do mean? not. No. Not I, even when it's, you know, $500 million Powerballs or something?
1: I don't really see the sense of that. If it's $30 million, I'm good with that. I don't need it to be $250 million. I wouldn't know what to do with $250 million that I wouldn't do with $30 million. In fact, I, I've often said, if you really want to know the essence of a human being, yeah. ask them what they'd do if they won $30 bucks. Ask them the top five things that they would do. Mm-hmm. It gives you the greatest insight into who they are as
0: a human being. Are because, you asking me?
1: Well, all right, let's see. Oh, all right, This is well, a good top, test.
0: Top five? Top five. What would you do with it? Gosh, that? I don't know if there could be a top five, but I'd buy a nice house. Or uh-huh. uh, a place to live, probably a big, big condo in Chicago. Or Remember, this is also like a that.
1: personality test, so be careful here.
0: Yeah, yeah. All right. For, you're buying, for, you're buying uh, a condo. A, you buy, a nice buy a place. condo. I would help a couple of people with their lifelong debt struggles. Always a good plan. I'm not sure I would buy them out and give them extra luxury money, but I'd certainly like to help them out with that. Sure. I'd immediately take a trip to Vegas absolutely, and put a lot of money down on a blackjack table and sit there about as long as it could possibly last, Yeah, which, because, which could be you're a lot, because I, I love blackjack. So, no, you I, I so
1: you could spend a lot of
0: time at a blackjack. I would go to Vegas. What else would I do? I would buy a new car, and I'm not sure exactly what it would be, but it would be something spiffy. Sure not not necessarily a sports car it's not the kind of thing that i'm i'm having a midlife crisis and i need a jaguar or or right. a two seater or something or right. other like that and number 5 i'd probably spread out a good chunk of money over a collection of chicago theater companies not enough to make them not have to ever raise money again, sure. but enough to maybe have them afford two or three productions without having to worry about going into debt or having to raise the money or where are we going to get this from?
1: You gave exactly the right answer because if the top five answers don't involve giving money to people who need it, yeah. then you know what kind of person that you're dealing with. <laughs> you know exactly who you're talking about. If They don't say something like help, because my analysis is like, well, I would help my family. I would put all my cousins and my uh, relatives' oh, no, 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 kids no, no. through they, college. They, and, you know that money. all that stuff and and, and and give to charity and, and and donate to theaters and all that kind of stuff. If they don't include, it's all about. Well, let's see. First, I'd get a whole lot of blow, and I'd <laughs> I'd buy a nice car for myself, and right. I'd divorce that old hag I was right. with, and find me a sweet young. You know, that's the way a lot of people think. And so, if you if you ask them that question, you ask them in their top five. Yeah. If it doesn't include some kind of charitable giving or helping out their family or whatever, and of course you're gonna travel. Of course you're gonna buy a nice car. You do sure. all that stuff, but it's got to include. Some form of philanthropy, otherwise you're dealing with a jerk.
0: Now, what about you? Can you go through three or five things that that you you, would do with thirty million dollars? About the same thing.
1: Yeah, it's about all all about the same thing. It's all about travel, helping out the family. Well, you
0: have kids too, so you know you'd want to put some aside for their college education and and to get them off to a decent start in life. At least
1: five six thousand dollars for each of them. I would (laughs) sock that away. Don't you worry, kids. That six grand's going to be waiting for you. What a
0: Dad. Hey, you oh, know, wow. you gotta help him out,
1: little little leg up, you know.
0: In the bum times category, uh-huh. a 52 year old man in nearby Elgin, Illinois, Ooh. Elgin is uh, northwest of the city here, a ni- nice community, uh, was taken by surprise after a prostitute he hired through his website turned out to be his own wife of 19 years
1: oh dear <laughs>
0: let me let me give you the scenario here the man had been using a, a website for some months to hire prostitutes and meet them for sex at motels in neighboring areas sure. and last weekend uh well he won the lottery you know that was one of his big that's top five that was not on my list but oh uh, well damn it i maybe it's six unlimited hookers A number of weeks ago, the man told his wife he was going out drinking with work colleagues, Mm. work colleagues, when in reality he was traveling to a motel on the outskirts of town. Upon checking into the motel, the man used his phone to access his regular website used to book prostitutes. Don't,
1: Don't we all have one? You have a regular website. Would, you Yeah, what book dummy would right?
0: use their cell phone yeah. to to book a, a prostitutes through a website? I mean, that's so easily found out. According to a statement he made to authorities afterwards, he saw the profile Wait, of a this new. This went
1: to the authorities. Afterwards? Yeah,
0: yeah, he saw the profile of a new quote twenty-seven year old woman who caught his attention. The photo showed only the woman from her neck down, but the man said he liked her body, so he sent her a message to see if she was free later that night. Uh She said she was, and they arranged for a liaison at the motel. Guests in adjoining rooms called the front desk to report a disturbance at around 8 p.m. after the woman arrived Uh and found that her client was none other than her husband of the last 19 years. Wow. It emerged that the prostitute was actually the man's 43-year-old wife, not the 27-year-old he saw on the website. She was furious Uh, to learn that her husband had been hiring sex workers, although he was equally angry to learn his wife had been freelancing as a prostitute. The last line of this is my favorite line. Here we go. It's believed the couple have plans to divorce in the aftermath. Really? (laughs)
1: That's a shocking ending. Let's unpack this for a minute. Sometime time. So so wait a second. She's using a false picture, first of all, to advertise herself.
0: Well, it might be her actual picture, and it's so, from the neck because down. Because the alternative is, she doesn't recognize I'm, his I'm own wife's body. I'm 27, and I'm into you know anything.
1: Yeah, yeah.
0: He doesn't recognize his wife's own body, the,
1: or. That's that's the alternative is is she's either using a body picture for her advertisements that is not her own or his wife of 19 years he has no clue what she looks like Maybe her he
0: never on. looks at her from the neck down. Maybe he only looks her in the face. When he says when he lies to her you and mean says that oh, I'm oh, going My out. eyes
1: are up here. He <laughs> takes that. Okay.
0: <laughs> exactly right.
1: Well, good for him then.
0: <laughs> you know what?
1: The male gaze he he may hire prostitutes off the internet, but by god he doesn't ogle women.
0: So good for him. That's, that's our uh, good times and bum times uh, for, for the week. Let's talk about your book for a minute. Sure. Invading Nirvana is the title. The subtitle is A Chicagoan in the City of Angels. Mm-hmm. Set this up for us. A couple of years ago or a year and a half ago or something, you decided to give... The big L.A. experience, a try as an actor, a voiceover artist, Mm -hmm. a stand-up comedian, all the things that you do. You're you're the renaissance man uh, of of this Rembrandt episode, (laughs) for sure. And so you consolidated some funds Mm -hmm. with... The consent of your wife, Uh, unlike this man in Elgin. I did
1: not just, yes, I did not just fly off to L.A. without consent.
0: And and you made a plan, Mm -hmm. a very complex plan, and a a very detailed plan of how you were going to survive for six months, was it? It was three.
1: three, Originally three. Three months. To see how it goes.
0: Just to see how it goes. Right. You got your agent to make some contacts for you out there. Yes. And you decided to just hit the bricks and see what happened. How did this book come about? You mentioned something about blog posts Mm -hmm. earlier.
1: Yeah. Well, when I, even when I was planning to go, before I ever left for LA, uh, I started up the blog and I was thinking of names and Invading Nirvana sounded like an interesting sort of compelling title. And I started writing before I even left. I was li- As I, as I refer to it, as I, I was live blogging my own midlife crisis. <laughs> I, Sarah and I decided I was going to go to LA, so I, I, I created this website and I started talking about the preparations for it. And so in the two months leading up to my actual trip, uh, I was talking about getting into shape and trying to get representation out there and getting my... My money together and doing all the things, new pictures, uh, new websites, spiffing everything up, and then on G- the first week of January uh, 2015, I flew to LA and I spent three months exploring every aspect of the entertainment industry that I could, auditioning and doing st- uh, stand-up comedy. I-, I decided to see if I could do stand-up. Yes, yeah. wh- I wanted to do every terrifying thing that you could possibly so that's, do. That's on about the, trip. the
0: bravest thing you can possibly do. Go well, to a, go to a new city and try to make it as a stand-up comedian.
1: Uh, Absolutely. But the, the, the advantage, though, the event, and I loved, the, I, I loved this, was I was completely anonymous. Nobody knew me there. If I, if I got up on a stage in L.A. and bombed, and I did, not all the time, but yeah. every once in a while, it didn't matter. I, did, I would never see these people again in my life. You know? They're not going to stop on the street and go, there he is. There's an awful man who did that terrible comedy. Sure. I, I walked out and nobody ever saw me again. It was great. I mean, I had this freedom to fail.
0: Freedom to fail. That's an excellent uh, way to describe the premise of this book, the freedom to fail. Yeah,
1: and I had no illusions about the fact that I was going to become a movie star in three months. I knew that was going to happen, but I wanted to see if I could get an agent, for example, which I did. I wanted to see if I could get a voiceover agent out there, which I did. I wanted to see if I could book any work, which I did. I shot a small uh, short film while I was out there, and that started me on my new career. I, I discovered doing audiobooks while I was in L.A., and I've been doing that full-time ever since I got back. It turned out to be the greatest thing I'd ever done in my life. And it had a happy ending, but not in any way I could have possibly foreseen. I met famous people, and I met soon-to-be-famous people, and I fully explored the city of Los Angeles. I write all about the various sights and sounds and smells and all that, uh, theater companies and uh, the tourist spots. And uh, I really did a deep dive into Los Angeles. I was there for three solid months. I poked my nose into every corner of the city and had an absolute blast.
0: Sounds like, from your book, one of the uh, smells of the city was the smell of cannabis everywhere. Oh, my God. You can't get away from that in L.A., right?
1: California is perpetually stoned now ever since they legalized <laughs> marijuana you cannot walk down the street without getting a whiff of it and you know the smell of pot and I in high school may have indulged once or twice so I know the smell you cannot walk down the street without, and, and they sell it now they sell it in stores right on the corner you take your little card it's all legal you walk in you walk out with a bag of pot you can puff right in the, in the street and the cops will walk right by it's astonishing it's a whole new
0: world You posit something here in Chapter 5 that I want to touch on. Uh, We were talking about going to Las Vegas. And in Chapter 5, you share with us your own personal theory of everything. And your theory of everything is lovingly entitled, Life is a Casino, or Odds? We don't need no stinking odds. Correct. What does that mean, Life is a Casino? How do you describe that?
1: Very simply, when you are born, you are issued certain chips in your life. Uh, some people get a lot. Some people get very few, right? Depending on your station in life. If you're a rich, white, American kid living in a great neighborhood, going to a terrific school, you are you got a lot of chips. You can spend them any way you want. If you are born a little lower on the economic scale, you're born with fewer chips. And if you're in the entertainment industry, if you decide to become an actor, you have very, very, very few chips. And these but chips
0: are, aren't—you're not talking monetary value. No. You're talking chips to play things in life to exactly. play the game of life. Indeed,
1: with. and if you're going, for instance, if you're if you're going into into show business, if you're really good looking, you have a bigger stack of chips to play with because being good looking helps in the entertainment industry. Sure. If you have a lovely mellifluous voice, yes, then then you're going to be helped out there chips, too. There's right? some more chips. for you to play. Or if you're really unusual looking, if you're a big pudgy, funny looking dude, that's helpful too. You don't have to be, you know, George Clooney uh, to make it in the industry. You can be goofy looking too. Plenty of people are character actors and make a ton of money. Harry Dean Stanton, the king of character (laughs) actors, just died this past week. And he looked like someone punched him in the face and melted him. So how you play those chips is very important. If you decide, let's say, you want to be a doctor, you're going to put all your chips on being a doctor. My chips, what I did with my chips is I put them all over the table. I get a little bit of chips on actor. I get a little chips on director. I get a a couple chips on writing and a chip or two on, let's say, stand-up and voiceover and whatever else that I do, playwriting. And what you do is you hope that one of those is going to hit. You hope that you get a jackpot on one of them and you just keep playing. The danger that you have is if you spread yourself out too thin... Then you're not able to concentrate on any one thing enough and you just do everything sort of half-assed. Yeah. You have to make sure that you're very careful with how you hoard your chips and how you play your chips. And then you, you see if you can get lucky. And a lot of it is luck.
0: Do you think you were born with a more than average stack?
1: Yes, absolutely. Because mm. you can learn how to be a good actor. I was trained well, you know, and that
0: uh, adds to your stack. In, in life, right? Absolutely, I mean, it's, it's not like it's not like you can't actually earn more chips as your life goes on, right? Yeah, yeah. If you if training you don't, and yeah,
1: if you don't know a skill, learn it. If you don't think you're good at what you do, do something else. Seriously, if you're not confident that you're a great lawyer, don't be a lawyer. Yeah. If you don't think you're the best surgeon. In the whole wide world, please, for the love of God, don't operate on me.
0: I want you to be <laughs> confident in what you do. And, and people
1: think, they, oh, you're so egotistical. Well, okay. Yeah, you don't want to be an asshole about it. But you, you also want to be confident in what you do. You want to have a more than healthy ego so that you feel good about what you do. And if you don't, then train yourself, fix yourself, get better at what you do.
0: Do you feel you spent your chips well in L.A.?
1: I did. I mean, it would have been great to to have come back with a great job or get booked on a TV show or a movie or something, but I know some actors, friends of mine who live in L.A. for 10, 15, 20 years who would have killed me dead if I'd gone out there for three months and wound up on a TV show. They would have hunted me down and destroyed (laughs) me. How dare you, sir? No, it it went really well. And like I said, I walked away with a new career and with a ton of experience and with this lovely new book that basically, helps people if you're thinking about going to LA read the book it'll it'll give you a little primer yeah on I was to... gonna
0: say this is uh, some of this book especially the early parts of it is like a primer uh-huh. for so you wanna be an actor so you wanna be an actor in the business right and you tell us some great decisions that you made along the way, and some not so great decisions you made sure. along the way. Absolutely. and you made mistakes and, and you also got lucky and you networked well. Uh, and it really could be a blueprint for how to maybe set yourself set yourself up for success, right. You give great hope and great incentive for people to go out and, as you say, put your chips on the table, but put them out there wisely.
1: Yeah. The most important thing that you can do as a performer ever is to be realistic. Don't look at things through these rose-colored glasses and think, I'm going to move to LA and I'm going to be a movie star. Because the likelihood is that you're really not. But that can't tell you the number of performers that I ran into in LA who who were thinking of leaving the business because they'd been living in LA for so long and they weren't finding work. And I was like, you ever think about instead of giving up the business, giving up LA cuz you're living in the most difficult place to find work and you're not finding work. Cut yourself a break. Maybe it's where you live. Maybe you should think about living somewhere else. Because when I was out there and I was like, "Oh, yeah, I'm thinking about quitting. I'm I don't know if I want to be an actor anymore." I was like, "Whoa, whoa, wait, wait. Are you doing that because you're frustrated because of the lack of work that you're getting or do you think you suck?" Because if you think you suck, quit. Absolutely. To get out. But if you think you're really good and you're just not finding work because you're living in the single toughest place to find work in America then leave L.A. Go, go somewhere back, else. Go back to Chicago or New York or, or Omaha or wherever it is you're from. Find a place that you can actually perform in and perform there.
0: Is this why you didn't stay out there and you came back to Chicago? No. As I said, I no, haven't I finished the football game. <laughs> <laughs> Ran out of chips. I
1: also ran. I miss my family very much. Sure. And, uh, so I came back to Chicago. And I, I was doing a play last summer, so I had a commitment to come back here and do a play anyway. But I would have gone back to L.A. again in a minute if they'd offered me work, not because I prefer L.A. to Chicago. I don't. But you reach a point, I was working on a day job. I was doing the nine to five thing and doing plays at night. Here in Chicago. Yeah, yeah. And I just couldn't take it anymore. And it it was one of those risks that you need to take. You hear that, you know, you, you always think, oh, maybe if I went to LA and tried it. Well, why don't you do it? Why don't you try it? Why don't you pick up all your things, save up your money, go, go for three months. If it, sucks and it's terrible, come back and yeah. do what you were doing before. Yeah. Yeah. And so I, I decided to do it, and I did it, and I was so happy I did
0: I was leafing through some of the later chapters, and I see that you've got a few posts, blog posts, chapters, mm-hmm. yeah. about the Church of Scientology. I do. That you explored that, not to become a member, No. but just because you were curious what well, can you share with us about what you did? You visited several of their facilities, right? I did,
1: yeah. Part of what I did when I moved to L.A. was I treated it as a almost like a journalism assignment. I was reporting back to anybody who was considering moving to Los Angeles, this is what it's like to live in L.A., When you get to Los Angeles, you can't help but notice Scientology is everywhere. I call it the Church of L.A. because you cannot turn around without bumping into a building that they've bought. And they have posters everywhere. And they have the Celebrity Center that's in Hollywood. And then they have the On Hollywood Boulevard. They have this giant information center there. There is a structure. you got to Google this. There's a Scientology building on Sunset Boulevard. It is the most ridiculous, huge, bright blue building you've ever seen it was an old, it looks like an old hospital and it has this Scientology sign up on the top of it it's gigantic it's ridiculous looking
0: like a Trump sign oh uh,
1: yes <laughs> big, big, absolutely giant. yeah yeah and so I visited all three places I went to the information center I went to the celebrity center they'll give you they'll give you a tour they're very welcoming they're very friendly they really really want you to join them they they are their doors are wide open and you, you very quickly discover, you walk in, you look around, and you realize it is the greatest scam that's ever been perpetrated on people in history. Hmm. They want your money. That's what they're about. They, they want you to take their tests, and they want you to do their personality thing, and they want you to become a part of them because you have to pay for what they give you. Really? Yeah, yeah. They're every gonna every
0: step of the way.
1: Not to get too deep in the weeds here, but the way they do is they're they're going to get you what they call clear. You're gonna be clear of all your past memories. The reason that you're not successful is you're clogged up with all these bad memories from when you were a kid. They're gonna get rid of all those bad memories. They're gonna make you clear, and then your life is gonna be fantastic. Spoiler alert: No one's ever clear. No one ever gets clear. They just keep taking your money and putting you through these sessions to make you clear, and it never happens. So,
0: Did you ever fear when you were at one of these facilities visiting that they were going to Shanghai you? Indeed. (laughs)
1: Uh, When I I went to the Information Center, one of the things things they're really big on, because again, it's the Church of L.A., so they love to show you movies. They have like Uh eight movies that they'll show you, one of which is hilarious hilarious. It's the life of L. Ron Hubbard, and they take you in the back, and they show you. It's like a 20-minute movie about how L. Ron Hubbard came to be. Oh, my God, it's the funniest thing I've ever seen in my life, because they, they don't show his face. You, you remember in uh, Ben-Hur, how they never show the face of Jesus in Ben-Hur, because it would be blasphemous sure. to actually show the face? Of, that's how they treat L. Ron Hubbard. They couldn't possibly hire an actor to play him, because... Really they they ju- they oh just God. show them from yeah, the neck from down and like, they let people talk around like and this like,
0: man's yeah. wife in the prostitute and the, website all, yeah. yeah and yeah. the lines
1: are hilarious they're like gran I know you want to share this with the world and the American Medical Association is turning you down I I don't know how we're going to get your message out like books were never invented uh, and it's just it's Absolutely ludicrous. So they brought me in the back and they showed me one of these movies and I was the only one there. And they, they said, well, we'll leave you alone here. And they, the door went click and I went, oh, no one knows I'm here. If the wall were to slide open and the, the Scientology guys came in and grabbed me and I, I woke up on some ship in the middle of the Pacific Ocean, no one would ever suspect a thing. And it was a little fleeting moment of fear. And then it went away. Wow. Yeah.
0: Where where can people find this book, Invading um, Nirvana, a Chicagoan in the City of Angels? People
1: can find that book on Amazon and barnesandnoble.com and everywhere where books are sold. You can buy the audiobook version on Audible. Uh, I happily narrated. It, it, it Did myself. you narrate it I yourself? Did. I did indeed. And uh, actually, I'm uh, happy to announce I'm doing a book signing on October 20th at the City Lake Bookstore in Chicago, and then on the 24th at the uh, Den Theater, I'm doing another book signing. So if you want to come and get your own personalized uh, signed copy of Invading Nirvana. You can come to The Den on the 24th, uh, 1333 North Milwaukee, or City Lit Bookstore yeah. on the 20th.
0: It's a great read, and as I said, if you're considering any kind of career in the performing arts and you want to go to L.A. and try to try that out, yeah. it's a great primer for that. A fascinating book, wonderful, well-written, beautifully done. I wanted to touch on your audiobook career. How's that going? That's great. It's
1: actually kept me afloat now. Ever since I returned from L.A. in December, I've been doing audiobooks full-time. I teach an audiobook class that that helps others get into the business. And you do
0: workshops. I do. Yeah, Uh, you'll come to somebody's house and tell them how you can get into the audiobook narration business
1: indeed if you go to audiobookChicago.com, the website of the fort Raphael publishing company which is my
0: company fort Raphael, uh,
1: yeah and you can uh you can sign up for a workshop i will come to your home and i will teach you how to become an audiobook narrator
0: when you were on the show last did we discuss my fear my lifelong deadly fear of sharks i i don't know that we did well i i, I have one and it's it's pretty real but well, you do live in the Midwest.
1: I think you're safe.
0: You'd be surprised. <laughs> uh, I don't go in anywhere in the water if it's above my, if it's above my knees. Hold it. Wait
1: a minute. I know are you telling me that you are afraid of sharks in Lake Michigan. Yeah. Oh, all right. That's that's ludicrous.
0: Well, anything in deep water. Well, you think that's ludicrous? Someone very uncaringly gave me a giant book of sharks. For those
1: of you listening, I would like to describe (laughs) what I'm looking at right here. There's a picture book that uh, Gary's holding up that is literally called Sharks. And it is a terrifying great white shark, Sharks and Other Dangers of the Deep. It has a truly imposing picture of a great white shark on the cover. Gary, what prompted this friend of yours to torture you with this?
0: I, I'm not exactly sure. <laughs> I, I, I think it was an attempt to, well, you know, if you go to therapy, they say face your fears. Okay. You'll, you'll be able to conquer your fears. Or if you're afraid of flying, go flying. So this book not only has descriptions of all different kinds of sharks, but my, my favorite part of it, is it has a danger rating. Oh, God. <laughs> and the danger rating are five giant jaws, ah. shark jaws, and it's it's rated, uh, you know, zero through five. Mm-hmm. Of course, the great white shark has f- five shark jaws. One would presume. The tiger shark has five jaws. Really? Also, uh, the tiger shark is known for attacking any people nearby in especially shallow water. Mm-hmm.
1: I'd like to emphasize, though, Gary, that's shallow salt water. (laughs) I just want to throw that out there, that you can actually go swimming in Lake Michigan without fearing a tiger shark attacking you. That's a 100% guarantee right there. I just want to make that absolutely clear. If you dropped a tiger shark in Lake Michigan, he would last, like, less than five minutes.
0: I appreciate your attempt at shark expertise, Kevin. (laughs) But... Let's get to another five-jawed predator. All right. Five-jawed danger rating is the bull shark. Okay. And they're they're very wide-bodied, and they're stout and very Mm -hmm. Uh, mean-looking. The bull shark is the type of shark that attacks people most often. I see. Uh, This is mainly because it lives in shallow coastal areas. They are the only sharks that can live... In fresh water. Oh, really? And have been found wow. many, many miles inland uh-huh. up the Amazon River in South America. It's only a matter of time till they, they figure the out Great Lakes. how to make their way up the Mississippi. I see. Through the rivers in Illinois and into the Chicago River, which is just ripe sure. for chomping. Absolutely. I yeah. mean, those kayakers and those people who jump off the pier now in Chinatown because the river is apparently so clean right. now. Sure. Bull sharks, definitely.
1: You know what? A bull shark who makes it up the Mississippi and through the Chicago River and into Lake Michigan, you may eat me. I, I, you have earned the right by God to eat a human being, and I will happily volunteer. If you make that trip, seriously, knock yourself out.
0: Well, I couldn't be more pleased that someone gave me this. I can barely touch it because the, the, the picture of the head of a great white shark is just gigantic on the front cover. We all and, have I, our and I generally have to keep it upside down in, in the house. <laughs> Anything that you're particularly afraid of, uh, Kevin?
1: Yes. I have a fear of frogs. Frogs and toads. I can't get near frogs them. Frogs and toads. Yes, yes. And I've, my children are well aware of this and, and find it hilarious to, hey, dad, look, oh, look at this, you know, poison tree frog. They're like, you. are you afraid of them because they're poisonous? No, just don't like them. Don't like them.
0: Yeah, what, what is it you don't like about them? I... Just the suckers on their feet or see, their color see, or their big bulging uh, eyes? What, or what?
1: Did I describe sharks to you? Did I? Did I? The you, gnashing you, you, jaws and the...
0: You, you sort of did. Yeah. You know,
1: I, I don't know what it is about them. I don't like them. I don't like that they're unpredictable. They could hop at any moment. I'm just, <laughs> well, that's Any
0: given... She, that's what frogs do. I know that. That's they why hop. I don't like
1: them. And people eat like frog's legs. You will pay for... They will find out. I would fear that some legless frog would show up at my front door one day like, you're the one. You're, <laughs> you're paying for this, you son of a bitch. No.
0: How would a legless frog get to your front I, door? They're clever. Little frog crutches. Cl- They're smarter crutches than you think. In a, a little frog wheelchair. Oh, oh,
1: I see. I see. A bullfrog can swim up the Mississippi, but a, a legless bull, frog bull, can't bull, make his a, way to my house. A bull house.
0: shark, yes. Uh, well, yes, exactly. <laughs> How's it going to make his <laughs> Who's way to irrational house? here? I'd like to I know. I know. I know. Drone. A drone. Frog drone. Frog drones. You'll drop All it right. right on your front doorstep. Sure. Did one. you
1: see during Hurricane Irma... They started a rumor that sharks had got caught up in the hurricane. That people were actually,
0: oh my God. And somebody posted some photos of a shark swimming like under a viaduct or something or, or where a flooded part of the freeway was. Yeah. And it turned out to be all just of a course, hoax. Of course. Yeah. But
1: uh, people will believe anything they see on in the interweb. So I love that.
0: <laughs> I didn't believe the shark story for a moment. No let me rephrase that. I believed the shark story for a moment because I wanted to believe the shark story. But then after I thought about it for one second, I said, no, 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 this isn't right. I was watching, uh, uh, Hillary Clinton on the Colbert show the other night, mm-hmm. and they were talking about her new book. What happened? Indeed. What happened? You can say that in so many ways. Yeah. One of the things that she says in her book was that in order to cheer herself up after the election, She went to Broadway shows. Doesn't that sound like a good thing to do?
1: That's therapeutic, absolutely. I
0: I like going to the theater when I'm feeling kind of sad, or it's feeling down, or feeling defeated.
1: I can't help but think, though, I would sit there in the middle of a show, I'd be watching Dear Evan Hansen, and then right in the middle of the show go, I lost to Donald Trump, oh my God.
0: Oh, I'm sorry, I'm sorry. You were saying? One singular yeah. sensation. And
1: you're, and you're sitting there going, oh, this is really great. Oh, God, I lost the <laughs> job. Oh, God. I mean, it, 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 that's got to wake you up in the middle of the night. Yeah,
0: it's got to. Shows she went to see were uh, Sunset Boulevard, the humans, the color purple, things like that.
1: Really uplifting stuff.
0: It sounds like (laughs) the humans, I'm not sure I would have sent Hillary to the humans to to, kind of cheer her up. Sunset
1: Sunset Boulevard, that'll toe (laughs) tap (laughs) her. Come on. Jesus. You know what, Uh, Hillary, we want to take your mind off the election. Why don't you go see this musical about this washed up nobody who used to be somebody important, but now they're completely forgotten. Enjoy, Hill. That'll take your mind off your troubles.
0: Don't take this personally, but hey, what's your sign? I'm a cancer. Well, I, I came across these two interesting pieces of journalism, Mm. dare I say, journalism the other day.
1: Horoscope-related journalism.
0: Virtually unrelated, except for the fact that they were astrologically oriented. And I figured that they might be fun to go through. Here's a ranking of zodiac signs by how likely they are to snap and kill you. Ooh,
1: that's important to know.
0: What do you think number 12 is? This is the least possible sign that is likely to snap and kill you one day
1: i would have to say a libra because they would be in balance somehow
0: libra comes in at number 10 libras are are pretty methodical and balanced and they don't often make impulsive or off-the-cuff decisions like To, to kill you a Libra weighs no pun intended there a Libra weighs the pros and cons of every situation before acting so an impulsive homicide would not be All in right. the hands of a Libra Makes sense. the least possible sign to snap and kill you is cancer hey there you go well cancers how have,
1: dare you s- I mean uh, yeah go on <laughs>
0: <laughs> they have huge hearts and their empathetic nature is something they're enormously proud of, uh, to get a cancer to a point of killing someone actually would be basically impossible.
1: This is great, because my wife is a cancer, too, so this, this I'll sleep better at night knowing this.
0: They're just too kind. Randomly killing someone isn't something a cancer would be capable of doing. There you go. Uh, the other piece of journalism about horoscopes and astrological signs that I came across was, what is the worst thing you can actually say To someone of a particular sign, since you're a Cancer, Mm -hmm. I'll tell you what they said was the worst thing you you could say. I promise you, I won't snap.
1: The odds are I won't snap. So say what. This is why I'm going to say it to you.
0: The worst thing you can say to a Cancer is you try too hard.
1: That's not so bad.
0: You don't feel bad about that? No.
1: No, that's not, really, the worst thing you could say to me is you try to? Yeah,
0: because they say that cancers, they have these huge hearts and they're always anxious to please. They're always anxious to please and do the right thing for people and show kindness and empathy for people. So to tell them that they're trying too hard apparently is not a good thing. Okay. What do you think the top three signs likely to snap and kill you would be?
1: I would go number one with Sagittarius because the Sagittarius is actually holding a weapon. So Sagittarius must be up there. I would say Scorpio because it's an actual scorpion, which also is a very dangerous sign. I'm going to go with that. And I'm going to go with either a
0: Leo or a Taurus. Two of those three answers sort of fall in the middle. According to this piece of I'm journalism, right. and, and I'm sure it's been well documented, if you're looking for impulsive decision makers, look no farther than, or further, I should say, than a Sagittarius. They often live their lives under the guise of "It's better to ask for forgiveness than ask for permission." This works. So they'll be they'll be standing there, knife in hand, and just shrug while trying to figure out how to weasel their way out of the situation they've plopped themselves into <laughs> by their own horrible, horrible, horrible lapse of judgment. <laughs> but one that you're very close on is Scorpio, uh-huh. number two. Scorpios don't really believe in accountability, apparently. Wow. Um, and the worst thing you could say to a Scorpio is silence. Ooh, yeah. <laughs> apparently, <laughs> apparently, uh, they they simply act and blame it on extenuating circumstances or something that was out of their control. But. The number one sign, uh-huh. and none, I, I didn't guess this, and uh, when I was reading I it, Gemini. Really? No other sign that's harder to predict and less likely you'd be able to anticipate or get ahead of.
1: Because they're always up to mind.
0: Yeah, sign. whatever mood a Gemini is in, whatever end they have planned for you. <laughs> oh. <laughs> How even they'll go about doing it, you will never see it coming.
1: No, no, wait. Where do you fall on this list? What's your sign and where do you... My, my
0: sign is Pisces, and Pisces falls at number 11. We Wow,
1: we, all right. You're even lower than I am. Though... No, no, I'm a last, right?
0: Though in some drunken conversations at times, I've often proclaimed to my friends that if I were to choose a profession, I think I'd like to be an assassin. Wow. <laughs> It's sort of an art form. Yeah, you're it's not. It's getting, getting paid to te- do you something. Know,
1: temperament has nothing to do with it. I, I will go on record and say, every person that I've killed, I did not do it out of anger. <laughs> every single one.
0: Well, that's, that's good to know.
1: I just, want, I just want that out there.
0: Why are you wielding that pen in such a I, knife-like I don't know what fashion? I not <laughs> The worst thing you can say to a Piscean, you're not wanted.
1: Ooh, see? Ouch. See but that's that's hostile, you know. You try too hard isn't hostile.
0: You're a member of Actors Equity. I am. And you're also a SAG member. I am. Right? When you work, you uh, are able to be covered by their health insurance program. Um, if you program. work, if if you you work, work certain, a certain number of weeks a year. Certain yes. number of weeks out of 52 you yep. have to qualify for. Uh, you're currently doing something that you're self-employed by. Yes. Uh, the audiobook reading. So I just wanted to touch really briefly—we don't often get into any political conversations on this show, but I I think this is important to mention. The Graham-Cassidy Act is Mm -hmm. going to come up uh, in front of Congress for a vote next week. Apparently they have until— I don't understand all the rules, the congressional rules, but apparently they have until only September 30th in order to debate this and vote on it. After right. that, they can't go back and do it again. They, there's some sort of statute of limitations or a time limit before you can revisit a bill. Mm-hmm. But it's Graham-Cassidy Act kind of frightens me. Yeah. Are you on the exchange at this point? Do you do the um, Affordable Care Act, the Obamacare?
1: No. I qualified for, for SAG coverage, so I'm, I'm covered under my union. But yeah. there are so many people that are going to be affected by this bill if it actually passed. I mean, they estimate that 30 million people could get thrown out of uh, health care if they do this. And... It's terrifying, because what they're proposing is, instead of having the government send the subsidies to the people who actually need the health insurance, they're going to send these block grants uh, to the states and let the states handle it. But the catch is that the states can do whatever they want to do with the money. You send the money to the state,
0: they don't have to use it for the health care. Right, the governor can decide what he'd want to use that for. Yeah,
1: and uh, as is the case with with Obamacare, the states that suffered the most, the states where it isn't working, is the states where the governors uh, were Republican and decided not to implement the the law. And the same exact thing is going to happen here. Millions and millions and tens of millions of people are going to lose their health insurance over this. It's astonishing. And you know the real reason why they're doing all this is to save the money on Medicare and Medicaid so that they can do the tax cut proposals. They cannot do their tax cut legislation. They can't do their tax reform unless they get the money out of Medicare and Medicaid, and then they can do the Uh, cuts on the taxes for the rich. That's why they're doing it. That's why it's so important. And the other half of it, of course, is because they they promised their voters up and down they'd get rid of Obamacare. Forget uh, whether or not you actually get to keep your health insurance. That's why they're doing it.
0: John McCain has come out in a negative fashion, and he uh, pretty much cast the deciding vote that uh, killed the previous bill, it's not determined yet whether he is gonna vote no, although all signs point to yes right. that he is going to. Do you think this bill's gonna pass? No. Do you think they're gonna get the votes?
1: I think not. Uh, if Murkowski, Collins, and McCain hold the line and 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 decide to vote no, that's it.
0: Yeah, uh, they can't afford to lose three senators. Yeah. They can yeah. only afford to lose two.
1: I think it's a mistake for them to do it now, but the reason they're doing it now is because they want to do tax reform this year.
0: Yeah. Well, whoever said all those people were smart.
1: Right. <laughs> I'm just saying.
0: I want to ask you, Kevin, about your new project coming up. You were at auditions today, in I fact. Did? You you auditioned some people. I did. Uh, for a new project that you're directing. And I hear, is this true, you're also in... Yes. You're going to be... Are, are you starring in it, or do you have a I, supporting role? No,
1: I'm I'm playing the lead role. You're uh, playing
0: the lead role, and you're directing.
1: Yes, my friend Ned Crowley uh, has written this play called... Who the
0: hell do you think you are?
1: <laughs> the <laughs> most <laughs> arrogant son of a bitch you where, ever met. Where do you, right. where do you find the are time? Are you kidding? I'm the Olsen Wells of Chicago. No. <laughs> uh, my friend Ned Crowley has written this wonderful play called A Dickens Carol, and it's fashioned on A Christmas Carol, of course, and the premise of the show is that... Charles Dickens uh, wrote a Christmas carol based on events that really happened in his life. So uh, having the ghosts visit him and teach him a lesson in his Reformation and all that didn't just happen to Scrooge. It Th- this actually... is
0: the imaginative premise of this yes. piece. You're saying that uh, they took Christmas carol and have run with it and said, yes. what if yes. these things actually were going on in Charles Dickens's life and he wrote from personal experience? Is yes. that, that what the premise... The
1: premise is that uh, Charles Dickens the inspiration for christmas carol was the fact that he was indeed visited by the ghost of christmas past present and future and that uh, he he went from being this crusty bitter author to this uh, to the man who created arguably the greatest christmas story of all time sure
0: it's, well other than frosty the snowman it, well, the animated version well come on <laughs>
1: That kind of goes without saying, but, <laughs> and it's a wonderful play. Uh, we just finished casting the show. It's, we've got an absolutely terrific ensemble and we will open up uh, Thanksgiving week and
0: run through Christmas Eve. And you're playing Charles Dickens. I'm
1: playing Charles Dickens. It's going to be the Madison street theater in Oak Park, Illinois, under the uh, umbrella of the Oak Park Festival Theater. Uh, so keep an eye
0: out. Does this have music to it?
1: Oh, we'll have music, yeah, of course. You I mean, it's it. not
0: a musical. No,
1: no. But every Christmas Carol has music in it because you have to sing Christmas songs. Come
0: on. Well, this is a Christmas fascinating song. idea. It's it's a just another take on a Christmas pageant type show that. Well, let's face it, is sometimes the bread and butter of a lot of theater companies. Yes. E- even large theater companies like the Goodman, they do a Christmas Carol every single year, and they they've do. been doing it for 40 years now? I,
1: I was proud to have been in the Christmas Carol at the Goodman Theatre for seven years. From 2002 to 2008, I did Christmas Carol there and had a great time. I loved it. I would go back in a minute. Yeah. Uh, it's a wonderful production. People love it. It's, an, it's a Chicago institution. We're doing this show not to, certainly not to compete with them. You can't compete with them. They're the, they're the elephant in the room. They are the Christmas show. Yeah. But yeah. we are saying, uh, hey, if you love Christmas Carol, here's an alternative. It's an alternative. It's yeah. like
0: the Santa Land Diaries exactly. or some other kind of knockoff of A Christmas Carol. Yeah. Uh, I'm excited about this. This show should be really fun.
1: I'm th- both thrilled and scared out of my mind to be approaching this It's project.
0: never been done anywhere before. So no, you're it's working a world with premiere. original script material yeah. and you're working with the writers. We're, yeah. we're
1: opening uh, November 26th in Oak Park, and I, we were talking about this today. The Goodman Theater this year is the 40th anniversary of the 40 years now, yeah, so we're what I calling thought. ours the first anniversary of (laughs) it's not even
0: first very clever and you said it opens uh thanksgiving weekend yes well i wish you the best of luck with that it's not well certainly not easy directing original material let alone starring in it so you've got your work cut out for you young man i do you're gonna have a busy autumn and you'll be really looking forward to christmas when you finally get a break i will sleep for three days i have no doubt kevin are you like me do you like magic
1: yes i do i love magic
0: we always end our program with a kiss of death segment. Aha. And uh, it's a celebration of someone's life uh, who has recently passed. And they're either famous or not famous or or, just someone, or or infamous even. Today we're going to talk about Eugene Berger. Do you uh, know who Eugene Berger don't is now? That I know. You know what? You're not alone. Eugene Berger magician and mentor to many aspiring illusionists who lived simply in a one-bedroom apartment on Dearborn Street, died at the age of 78 in his hometown of Chicago recently. This was not front-page news nor an occasion for mayoral proclamation, but it easily could have been. Based in Chicago, he was reputed for his close-up skills and his work in mentalism and bizarre magic. He had this huge, long, white beard, he, he looked very Svengali-like and a bald head. Berger was not a household name, unless your household happened to include world-famous magicians among that group, <laughs> to the leading people of global magic. He qualified as a deity. Berger was also, get this, he was a philosopher of religion. He had degrees in philosophy and earned a Bachelor of Divinity degree in 1964 from Yale University. Okay. He also taught university courses in comparative religion and philosophy. Mm -hmm. I'll describe how that ties in with his magic uh, in a minute Uh, Berger frequently taught at the McBride Magic and Mystery School in Las Vegas, Nevada And he was the author of books and instructional videos on the presentation of Close-Up Magic Including Secrets and Mysteries for the Close-Up Entertainer All right 1982 once a 21-year-old magician from Kentucky found himself at the legendary Magic Castle in Los Angeles. Visit the Magic Castle when you were in didn't. L.A.? I did I really wanted to go. Oh, you know you have to be invited? That's such a great time.
1: I know. I couldn't get an invitation. That is such a great
0: time. When I was there doing a show, I think it was a woman of independent means with the uh, famous Barbara Rush. We got invited to the Magic Castle, oh. and it was—I've been there twice now. It's one of the great experiences of your life. You really got to meet somebody. You should have made connections to get You know get what? My invited. friend Paul
1: Strolley knows someone who does magic there. I should— i should—I uh, Paul Strolley
0: knows someone who knows does everyone. just about anything. I know. Well, this uh, young magician went to the Magic Castle where Berger was performing, and the uh, visiting illusionist was inexperienced, but he'd already made an appearance on uh, The Tonight Show with Johnny Carson, Mm -hmm. and he thought himself a bit of a young hotshot, and he watched Berger light a candle and perform a close-up trick where he burned some thread into tiny charred pieces only to restore it whole, Mm -hmm. as if he were an alchemist, and the young magician was floored. I remember thinking, said Lance Burton, now a Las Vegas star, Mm -hmm. why isn't this guy a household name? Well, he made a number of return visits to his alma mater. This is Berger now at Yale, where he impressed students with his existential theorizing around the notion that magic is here to remind us that, this is a quote from him, life is not a problem to be solved, but a mystery to be lived. Oh, One of his favorite axioms was, magic is not tricks, it's a way, hmm. sort of like the towel. Wow. The Tao of Berger. Instead of seeing a psychotherapist, one Chicago magician named Ricardo Rosencrantz said, I would go see Eugene. There was truth, but there was no dogma. He was a man who knew what you needed and afforded it to you. Born in Chicago in 1939, Berger was smitten with magic at the age of eight when his parents took him to a magic show at the historic Oriental Theater, right here in the Loop. Mm-hmm. He used to say that magic was a calling that magic as a career chose him. After Yale and a year studying at a Lutheran seminary, Berger held various jobs in Chicago, get this, eventually landing a position as the director of welfare for the city of Evanston, right here. Wow. Wow. Our studio base. But magic was always on his mind, and he practiced diligently and performed for friends. At their encouragement, Berger quit his Evanston job and decided to make magic his life's work. His first job was at a restaurant and club newly opened on Chicago's famed Oak Street, where he learned to conquer his fear of performing through courage. Kind of like your stand-up. Indeed. I mean, he would practice and practice and practice, but there's nothing like doing it in front of an audience, right? Well, Berger quickly became known in the magic community as a master of close-up techniques, doing card tricks and sleights of hand with his audience, sometimes only inches away. Now, I've seen some close-up magic at the Magic Castle. Oh, yeah. You and I are, what would you say, we're about three feet apart? Easy, yeah. Yeah, I would sit at a table at the Magic Castle with the illusionist, not even as far away as you are, maybe two feet. And they would do card tricks and tricks with coins that boggled the mind, and you could not figure it out. I I suspect if I was standing behind him, I wouldn't know how it was going. Berger's misdirection and dexterity of manipulation became legendary. Two-time recipient of close-up magician and lecturer of the year at the Magic Castle in Hollywood, which we just mentioned. Famous for his beard and his soothing, hypnotic voice. That probably helps.
1: Oh, yeah, sure. You've got one. Yes, uh, please, whatever you do, don't look at my eyes, my look at my hand. Pick a card. Any card. Nothing up my sleeve. <laughs>
0: His creativity in magic established him as a leading figure in the field. He is considered one of the 100 most influential magicians of the 20th century Mm. by Magic Magazine. Uh, Berger became a mentor to numerous magicians throughout the years, many of whom have gone on to have spectacularly successful careers. He was also a frequent lecturer at medical schools, speaking to groups of aspiring physicians about the magic of healing. He was fond of saying that magic was medicine because it makes us feel better.
1: See, I thought you were going to say, he could make your appendix disappear. (laughs) Gallbladder? How
0: did you do that? No gallbladder.
1: Exactly. But there's no incision. Aha!
0: He wanted not to fool these young doctors in training with his tricks, but to make them see that the reason we all are drawn to magic and illusion is, in essence, a hedge against our fear of death. Wow magic he would say represents our wish for immortality the magician has a lot in common with the healer it's all about our innate desire to see things made whole berger was well known for teaching the art of presentation in magic he posited that there are two ways of watching any skill or art form The analytical way, where the watcher tries to figure out how the magic, quote-unquote, is done. Mm -hmm. And the innocent way, where we watch the art with a childlike sense of wonder and transformation. Mm. You know, I often feel this way when I go to plays and, and musicals. I want to be carried away in the innocent way, where I watch it all happen with wonder and a sense of transformation. Far too often, however, I I find myself in the middle of a play trying to analyze how they did that light design or... Boy, that set moved kind of cool. I wonder how they did that. In a 2013 interview with Genii Magazine, a magazine for conjurers, Berger was asked about his legacy. He said, I'm just trying to find my own way along this magical path, which is a path full of brambles and thorns. Uh, Magic is about transformation, Berger says. Transformation is one of the most fundamental symbols and metaphors of magic. Have you ever tried performing magic? You you seem like the kind of guy who might have picked up a deck of cards when you were a kid, or got Absolutely. like a magic when I was a kid, a magic I did. kit for Christmas yeah. or something. Yeah,
1: it's one of those rites of passages when you're a teenager. Sure. Is everybody gets into magic, and you try and do a card trick. And sure, because there's no better feeling than pulling off a trick like that. Yeah, uh, when we were kids, they would sell magic kits on TV. It was a big big deal. You had to buy the magic kit, and everybody yeah. had Christmas present. If you were 13 years old, you got a magic kit. <laughs>
0: magic kits erector sets sculpting uh, chemistry sets (laughs) chemistry sets we had them all in our house well if you like what you hear on Booth One you can support our efforts in bringing you the finest in the art of lively conversation and scintillating guests by going to our website at www.booth-one.com and click the donate button. It's quick, it's easy, it's fully tax deductible, and any contribution would be greatly appreciated. Kevin Tice, thank you for being my co host in the uh, hot seat today. My pleasure, my friend, anytime. Like us on Facebook, follow us on Twitter uh, for Booth One, and my co host, Kevin Tice. This is Gary Zabinski saying so long and keep listening.